and what a glad day that certainly will be to be able to lift our voices together on that wonderful day when entrance into heaven shall have been pronounced upon those that are faithful. There shall never be a more glad and happy day for those who hear those beautiful words on that occasion than that. It is good to be able to be out and about tonight, as Brother Roger mentioned in the announcements, the ability that's ours, for we have so many who are sick and ill, and let's continue to pray and think earnestly upon their behalf, and certainly hope that very, very soon that they'll be able to enjoy an improvement in their health, a return to doing some of the things that they have formerly appreciated and enjoyed so much to do. As you might have noted in the reading taken from the Sermon on the Mount, we will look at the fulfillment of the law tonight from a perspective of what the Lord did say, and also for at least a thought or two that he did not include in his discussion of the fulfillment of the law. And so tonight, might I invite you to consider first a few introductory thoughts, and then from that we will look more carefully at what the Lord had to say in verses 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 5. As we have often considered the children of Israel in the Old Testament, we have been led to appreciate the major part that they play in the unfolding of God's plan for the human family. Starting there from, in fact, the days of Jacob when he deceived his brother Esau and when he, in fact, received the birthright, and finally also the family blessing as well. From there through the remainder of the Old Testament, it is the children of God through Abraham in fact, that are presented with such a very special place. Were they not a very special people? In the sense that through them, God had plans to bring into the world none other than the Christ himself. And thus, in the preparation of the years for the occurrence of that event, he gave in roughly the year 1500 B.C. what we call the Law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And that law thus proceeded to remain supreme over the Jewish economy for roughly a millennium and a half. That's a long time. A thousand five hundred years. And then into the world the Christ came. Per the statement of Galatians 4 verse 4, But in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law, that he might redeem them that were under the law. It reads Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5. When the proper time had come, the law of Moses was about to reach the point where God intended another law to come into its place. And thus that has led over the years to a number of questions about what really did happen then to the law of Moses. Was it in fact annulled or, or discarded? Was it superseded and replaced? Did Jesus in fact replace it in a piecemeal fashion? From time to time, you may hear comments much like that latter one made today, that in fact, while the Lord lived here upon earth, piece by piece, he began to remove portions of the old law even then and replace it with various prescriptions concerning what would be the case under the law of Moses. I would hope tonight that we will be able to consider some passages, not the least of which will be the one that Greg read a few moments ago, and look more interestingly at the thought of, is that true or is it not? And so as we journey on that way, first we will look at what Jesus' relation to the law of Moses was, and then we'll ask about the disposition of that law, and I believe that will in fact answer what our position toward it must be today. And so with that said, let's turn again to Matthew 5 verse 17. And look and see, first of all, what the Lord did say in that very interesting text. 
<clears throat> Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Reads Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus thus initially made the very profound statement. And as we shall see in a moment, that took on a very interesting significance relating to the Sermon on the Mount itself. Think not, he said, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Almost immediately it might be of note that he made reference to two especial things, the law on the one hand and the prophets on the other. You and I, as we read that today, probably think about in general the Old Testament. And in fact, that's not at all inappropriate. There were three divisions in the Hebrew Old Testament. One of them was the law, one was the writings, and one was the prophets. On this occasion, Jesus, perhaps as a way of making reference to the whole, simply enumerated two of them. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law that consisted of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but he also mentioned the prophets. That, of course, leads to a little bit of an interesting realization. We are accustomed in our Old Testament to seeing 39 books enumerated and numbered from Genesis through Malachi. The Hebrew Bible did not have 39 books in it. In fact, it had, it had far, far fewer. In terms of the Old Testament books, you see, they did not separate them the same way that you and I do. For instance, you and I may refer to the books of First and Second Kings. In Hebrews, that was one book. It was called the Kings. Other books, such as Jeremiah and Lamentations, were joined into one book. They were not separated as you and I see them. When Jesus thus referred to the writing, I'm sorry, to the prophets and to the law, he was referring to the vast extent of the majority of that. Later, he would make a special reference to all three parts. In Luke 24, verse 44, after he was resurrected, but yet before he ascended to the Father, on that occasion, in specifics about the fulfillment of that, he said in terms of the law, the writings, and the prophets, all shall be fulfilled and are in their fulfillment such as concerning me. As we see here then, Jesus was discussing with some individuals in Matthew 5 a very profound set of ideas. The Jews and those that were of Hebrew nationality treated very powerfully the Old Testament. To them, they based their life upon it. He thus said, Don't you think that I've come to destroy it? I have not come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. May I submit to you, that still is a bit of a confusion for some in our world today. For they thought that the Lord came to destroy it. They thought the Lord perhaps have come to set it aside, to annul it, to discard it, to do away with it. In fact, he said he didn't come to do any of that. I came to fulfill it. In fact, that will take on an interesting notice when you look at what occurs next in the Sermon on the Mount. Five times in Matthew chapter 5, we read texts and sentences that read something like this. You have heard that it hath been said. Now, five times he made that statement. Once with regard to the nature in verse number 21, thou shalt not kill. On another occasion with regard to verse number 27, thou shalt not commit adultery. Another occasion, verse number 33, thou shalt not forswear thyself. Another in verse number 37, 
and 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Finally, verse number 43, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Five times he said, you have heard that it hath been said. But he turned around and in the next verse, usually he said, but I say unto you. Doesn't it sound as though perhaps the Lord was taking some Old Testament commandment and thus setting it aside, doing away with it? But previously in verse 17, he said, I did not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. We're inching closer to seeing perhaps what the Lord had in mind as he made that statement. I might ask you to notice that word destroy that Jesus employed. It's used in a variety of ways in the sacred scriptures. It can mean to destroy, to demolish. It on other occasions can mean to abrogate, to annul, or discard. May I submit to you in language that you and I might easily appreciate the Lord perhaps said, Think not that I am come to discard, to annul the law of Moses. I didn't come to do those things. I came to fulfill it. When we cast the spotlight on that word fulfill, it adds a new dimension to what the Lord said he did not come to do, and then on the other hand, what he did in fact come to do. Maybe we should spend a moment and revisit. What is the case concerning God's will? Concerning his law, that law of Moses admittedly was a particular aspect of the law of God for a different dispensation than it is for us. But as we ask about the nature of God's law in any fashion or in any form, doesn't it take on a dramatic significance? In Psalm 119 verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Once God emanates and presents His Word, His revelation, is there the case then that anyone at any time has the opportunity, the right, and the privilege of annulling, setting aside, or in some way removing that law? Forever, He said, Thy Word is settled in heaven. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, we read there, The Word of the Lord endureth forever. That was quoted by Peter, wasn't it, in 1 Peter 1.25? In Matthew 24.36, Jesus, in one of the last great sermons, extended ones that he proclaimed, one that related to the nature of the end of time and the nature of events that would occur, he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. We have some interesting statements that seem to suggest the almost infinite character of God's Word once it is presented. That would seem to suggest then that perhaps it's not possible to destroy it. Perhaps it is impossible to annul, discard, set aside, or in some way remove it. No wonder the Lord said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Could it be that the only thing possible with respect to God's law and Word once it's given is for it to be fulfilled, that is, completed. And once it's completed, then another law can be put in its place. I'd submit to you it's never possible to destroy the Word of the Lord. Is it any wonder then that Jesus made very plain and very clear to those who were His hearers, those who had their hearts set now on the law of Moses, the nature of its importance, 
He wanted them to know, I'm not coming to trivially treat that law that you've based your life on. I have come to embody the absolute fulfillment of it and thus to, in fact, complete it. All the precious treasures to which it pointed are embodied in me. And as such, once I have completed it, then and only then can any kind of superseding law be given to replace it. If that be the case, and we shall need to investigate that further, we have in fact reached a rather new appreciation for the law of Moses, I think, and one which answers vibrantly that which has been the case in many types of presentations you and I may have seen in, in recent years. I'll try to highlight that more clearly once we've arrived at the next segment of the lesson. But just as an idea to consider, in John 10 verse 35, Jesus addressed this same matter in language that is practically unmistakable. On that occasion, in addressing again those that were of Jewish nationality, he very plainly said, the scripture cannot be broken. That's a very strong declarative statement. The scripture cannot be broken. And the Lord made that statement after quoting from the 82nd Psalm in the Old Testament. Let's notice what the word broken means. That Greek word that's translated broken means to invalidate, or perhaps in a different way, to annul. And thus, in absolute plainness, the Lord said, It is absolutely impossible for any tenay, any dogma, any doctrine of the Old Testament to be broken, to be annulled, to be, in fact, abrogated or set aside without the specific authority of its completion and an appropriate replacement. That leads me thus to bring into play, or at least into discussion, some of the things that have been taught in recent years. As one looks at the prescriptions of the Law of Moses, it indeed had some very interesting things such as the sacrifices that we mentioned this morning, such as also the three treks to Jerusalem that were to be made on an annual basis. It also had within it other things that had become to be bound by tradition, such as aspects of working on the Sabbath. We remember, for example, the Lord, in fact, the Old Testament had said there was to be no work done on the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verses 11 and following. There are those who now today would say, Jesus, as he was here in the flesh, began to set that part of the law aside. He allowed his disciples, for instance, to work and gave them heaven's permission to do so on the Sabbath. Can you and I accept that? Based on the Lord's statement that the Scripture cannot be broken, was he at liberty or anyone else to set any piece of the Old Testament aside and begin to replace it before it was fulfilled? No. And in fact, the Lord in these two passages said, I did not come to set aside, destroy, demolish, abrogate, or annul. I came to fulfill it. I might submit those who thus think that Jesus violated that law and gave his disciples permission to do so as if God had given such, that is not a proper view toward things. We read in Hebrews 4.15, in fact, the following text, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. 
Sin is a transgression of God's law. The Lord, as a Jew, lived beneath the law of Moses. If he ever one time violated it, he sinned. If he ever one time transgressed in any form or fashion the law of Moses, he was guilty of sin. And yet the Hebrew writer said never once did he sin. It thus naturally follows. He never once violated, abrogated, destroyed, demolished, or in any way taught or set aside anything relative to the law of Moses. That perhaps only leads us thus to conclude that part of our lesson with some of these thoughts. According to these statements by Jesus, it in fact is not a possibility for anyone to set aside or to annul, if you please, any aspect of any part of God's law. All that can be done is for it to be fulfilled, and then another law to replace it can be, in fact, put in place. To highlight that, Jesus, in fact, needs to be considered in regard to what he said in verse 18. This is the other passage that was read earlier. To this point, we haven't shed any emphasis upon it, but now is the appropriate time, it would seem. After saying, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets, for I came not to destroy but to fulfill, Jesus went on in verse 18 to say this, For verily I say unto you, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. It may be that as we have read that, we've wondered, what was the Lord attempting to emphasize when he said, For verily I say unto you, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. I believe it's now time to bring that thought together with the one we've just now previously considered. The jot and the tittle. As a prelude to that, the Lord was emphasizing the following idea. The smallest particle present in the Old Testament, in that law of Moses, will not in any fashion pass away until it has its fulfillment. That is an exceedingly, exceedingly strong statement. To emphasize the Lord's point, let's put ourselves as nearly as we can into the place of those who heard him say that. Now, to do that, we will need to make note of some of the features of the Hebrew tongue. I realize that none of us are natural speakers of Hebrew, and we can't read Hebrew, but I hope I can make that point by a little research that I was able to do and present to all of us for consideration. Let's look at the jot first, J-O-T, to which the Lord referred in Matthew 5.18. He again said, For verily I say unto you, one jot or one tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The Hebrew alphabet was a very different alphabet, not shockingly, to the one that we have. The English alphabet employs 26 letters. The Hebrew alphabet had 22 letters. Those letters are, of course, presented in a very different way from the English letters we know today. In fact, the Hebrew language is exceedingly ancient in its nature. I've listed some of the thoughts about what you can see concerning the jot. The jot was the tenth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Not only was it the tenth, you and I know it today as the Y-O-D-H. That's in fact what I've attempted to write out there. If you look at the third line from the bottom, the Y-O-D-H is the English way of writing this tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
If one were to ask, what does that letter look like? We know, for example, what an A and a B and a C in English look like. We impress upon our children the need to learn that often before they ever enter school. At the very end of the third line from the bottom is the jot in Hebrew. If you didn't know any better, it almost looks like an apostrophe or something, doesn't it? That's how small it is. And I might go ahead and say, I used a larger font to write it than would ordinarily have been written. It really looks even smaller than that. That is the jot to which Jesus referred. To perhaps even highlight that further, to make it even more interesting as to how small that letter can look, I chose to write one of the Hebrew verses of the Old Testament. Again, I know we can't read Hebrew, but that's Leviticus 21 verse 7, the last two lines on that screen. There is a jot in that somewhere. Are you able to find it? Are you able to locate where it is? If you look a moment, you probably can, can discover it. But as you begin to notice, all those letters that are present, the jot is a very small letter. In fact, it was the smallest of all the Hebrew letters. The Lord was saying, I'm telling you, not even the smallest jot from the law of Moses will disappear until all of it's fulfilled. In case you're looking for where that jot is in that particular text, you might somewhat look on the second row, for that's, for that's actually where it, where it should appear. If you read back to verse 7 of Leviticus 21, you'll find that that text relates to some of the statements concerning what priests could and could not do in their families. And one of the words in it begins with that letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and so that's the one I chose to use as an example for us to consider. The jot. And I might also mention one other odd fact about Hebrew that makes it so different from English. We also know that we read English from left to right. Hebrew is read from right to left. So if you were in fact reading that, one would actually read it like this. The verse starts here and you would read right to left. And then when you get to the next line, you would do the same thing. So it's read backward from English, at least from our perspective. That also is very important to notice for those of our country who go on business trips to that part of the world. For, of course, you must read road signs from right to left. And you must read all the newspaper articles and everything from right to left. For that's how even Arabic and other Hebrew languages are written even today. So with the observation of what is present in that verse... Does that not add an interesting emphasis upon how Jesus said not the smallest particle, not the smallest particle will be removed until all of it's fulfilled? But the Lord didn't stop with the word jot. He also made reference to the tittle, didn't he? Let's consider it as well. In Matthew 5, verse number 18, might we notice that the tittle, in fact, by absolute translation makes reference to the little horn, or if you please, a point or an extremity. And it in fact refers to one of the smallest strokes of the pinion that could distinguish one of the Hebrew letters from the other. I have listed again letters from that Hebrew alphabet, which I appreciate none of us would actually know likely off the top of our head. But nonetheless, things which upon looking at them, I think you can see the similarity. For example, 
Two of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet are known as Keth and He. As you notice in parentheses, I've stated what the number in the alphabet that is. Keth is the eighth letter. He is the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But now look at how similar those letters appear. Here is Keth and there is He. How similar do they look to you and me? No doubt to a person who knew and wrote Hebrew, you could well distinguish them. I'd submit to you, to the English eye, it's a pretty challenging matter. The only difference you will notice, really, is a stroke in one of those lines on the upper part of it. And to us, that would appear to be the only difference. See the tittle, the slightest stroke of the pen that would distinguish one of those letters from the other. But that isn't the only example. Look at the letters Daleth and Resh, respectively letters 4 and 20 in the Hebrew alphabet. Notice how similar they appear. Do you see again that all looks to be almost identical, but one is more rounded than the other one? That's the only difference. Can you imagine if you then were to write a composition for an English class in Hebrew, how careful with the stroke of the pen one would need to be? Or else your daleth might look like a resh, and the teacher would mark off points. Clearly, when the Lord was referring to the tittle, he was referring to the most careful stroke of the pen that identified God's revelation in the Old Testament in the Law of Moses. Letters 2 and 11 are also very similar. First, there's the letter Beth. That's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, much like the English B. There's the letter Kaf. The 11th letter, as you look also at them, do you notice again that simply calf is more rounded, but other than that, they point the same way. They have many of the same ideas in terms of the width of portions top and bottom and a narrowness on the stroke connecting them. It is the case, as the Lord referred to the jot and as he referred to the tittle, those who heard him speak would clearly have understood not the slightest and most simple of marks from that law of Moses or from the Old Testament law will be removed until it all is fulfilled. That kind of appreciation still amplifies further the thought then that it was not possible and Jesus did not in any way set aside that law until all of it had met its conclusion and met its fulfillment. Thankfully, there are other passages in the New Testament that even refer to this idea, and some even in the Old. As we approach near the latter portion of our time this evening in terms of our lesson, let's try to bring all of that together by looking at a few additional notes about this text. Just as surely as Jesus came then to fulfill that law of Moses, to fulfill that which was proclaimed in the Old Testament, never to, in fact, set it aside, Never, in fact, to annul it. We can see even some places in the New Testament where that idea now is made clear. For, in fact, let's revisit the word fulfill that he used. What does the word fulfill mean? It means to fill full or to complete. The Lord thus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy it. I've come to fill it full. I've come to complete it. Those prophecies, and there are well over 300 of them in the Old Testament, that pointed to the coming of the Anointed One, that pointed to the coming of the Messiah, 
that pointed to the coming of God's emissary on earth, who would be the fulfillment of all that had been spoken of him, and who would set the stage for the fullness of God's grace to the human family. The Lord said, I didn't come to set any of that aside, or any particle, any jot, any tittle of any portion of it. I've come to fulfill it in every particular and in every minuteness. As the Lord made that statement, does that not then lend a rather, rather fantastic consideration of the Jews who heard him speak? Later, when the time of the cross was standing and looming right before him, and when he, in fact, was on that occasion of when Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? Isn't it interesting how they responded? One might have thought that with their knowledge of the Old Testament, their appreciation of the various statements and prophecies in it, that they would have pronounced one after one of various prophecies. He didn't fulfill this. He didn't fulfill that. He didn't fulfill the other part. Isn't it amazing that their argument was never based on that? Remember, they brought false witnesses, for they could not come up with a single Old Testament prophecy that he had failed to fulfill in absolute minuteness, in complete accuracy, not one. When one takes that consideration and approach, one can only be amazed then at the Lord's reference to the tittle and to the jot. And by the way, doesn't that also help us today to be impressed with how amazing God's Word is? We have often noted that Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. What then ought to be our approach or anyone's approach today to even the New Testament? Can the slightest word be removed? Can the slightest sentence be altered or modified to read what one might wish or prefer that it would read? It should be a frightening exposition for anyone to think about trying to change any word. If the Lord said that every tittle and jot of the Old Testament was important, and if the new law is superior to the old, what does that say about every single letter of every word that the Holy Spirit has revealed in the New Testament? I would think it should mean that every individual should stand in frightened fear of thinking about changing any word of it. So much so that in the very last paragraph in the Bible, there's a warning to those who would add to the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice that John said to that person will be added the plagues contained within it. By the same token, he said those that would remove anything from this prophecy, from the book of life, their name will be removed. Literally what hangs in the balance both then and now is thus an eternity in hell. To change God's word, to tamper with it, to in fact attempt to modify, alter, or change it, it's not possible. Jesus, and thus we should appreciate in his fulfillment, could well be said in the New Testament to be presented like this. In Galatians 3 verse 24, do we not there read that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to who? To Christ. 
the things contained in that old law of Moses, all their regulations, the things described with jots and tittles and all the other letters to which we've referenced tonight, those things had a grand mission and purpose to direct attention to the one who would fulfill them. Thus, when Paul addressed the Galatians, he very powerfully said that, in fact, the law, that law of Moses, was a tutor to bring us to Christ. If one reads and studies in the Old Testament, but somehow doesn't come to Christ, he's missed the point. He's missed everything that brought to greatness that which was contained in that Old Testament. But yet, aren't there some today who attempt to bind upon the human family certain elements of the Old Testament? It wasn't too many years ago, and perhaps you received a certain pamphlet in the mail. It was from a well-known organization, in fact, the Seventh-day Adventists. And as they delivered their paraphernalia and their various pamphlets, the central doctrine contained in that book, if you read through it, was that the law is still concerning the Sabbath as binding today as it was in Exodus chapter 20. That though other particular aspects of the law of Moses were in fact done away with, that was not. And in fact, the claim in that book was that even the Lord didn't set that aside. It is still, so they say, as binding today as ever. One can only be amazed as one considers thus what we've studied tonight. We have learned that the Lord didn't come to destroy. He did come, though, to fulfill. Once that law was fulfilled, what did it itself say would happen to it? We only need to read Jeremiah 31. That, too, is contained in the Old Testament. And beginning in verse 31 and reading through verse 34 of that chapter, the prophet Jeremiah, in speaking, of course, the cause of God, said that there would come a time when this law, the one under which he was then serving, would not be permanent. It was only temporary. There would come a time when another law would be written upon their hearts. Doesn't that itself proclaim that that law God never intended to be permanent? But rather that there would come a time when it would be superseded by, replaced, if you will, once it was fulfilled. Thankfully, the New Testament has much to say about that. And in Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13, the last portion, in fact, of that chapter, we read of a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, the very text to which we just referred. And the Hebrew writer says that you and I now have access to a better covenant. It's built upon better promises. It, in fact, has the perfect high priest. So much so that in verse 13 of that chapter he said, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which waxeth old and decayeth is ready to vanish away. Might we ever take note that there was no distinction made there about the Sabbath versus any other part of that law. All of it was taken away, wasn't it? Paul said so to the Colossians in Colossians 2 verses 14 to 17. It has always been a rather amazing thing to me that that part is verbatim contained in the New Testament and there is even mention made of the very matter under discussion concerning the Sabbath. I'd invite you to read the fullness of all of those four verses. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 14. Let's read through verse 17. 
blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon, and may I emphasize, or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Here's an inspired writer who very clearly said that the Lord nailed something to the cross, took it out of the way. Now here we have an explicit inspired statement that the time had come, and by what we'd learned earlier, it had been fulfilled. Having been fulfilled, it could then be removed, replaced, for it could not be done away with before it was fulfilled. Once it was fulfilled, then we read here that Paul said that Jesus nailed it to his cross. And in that act, it, of course, was able to be superseded. A new covenant was put in place. And the Lord, even right before His crucifixion, had stated that was to be the case. He said, speaking of the wonderful fruit of the vine, This is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, verse 28. He thus there said, A new covenant is being put in place. When he made that statement, it was less than 12 hours until he would be crucified. The end of the old regime was 12 hours away. The new regime was coming into place. The mosaic economy was about to be gone. We appreciate the fullness then that was about to be seen. All those jots and tittles that old law would be done away with because now they were fulfilled. They could be replaced by that new covenant, the better covenant, the perfect covenant. To perhaps draw this lesson to its conclusion, there are many other passages in the New Testament that, ref that refer to the fading glory of the Old Testament. Perhaps not the least would be the third chapter in 2 Corinthians. A whole chapter is devoted to Paul's inspired discussion of the fact that Moses, in fact, remember his face shone brightly after he descended from Mount Sinai. And the children of Israel had to look very carefully upon him. But he said the glory of that law was fading from the moment it was given because it was not intended to be permanent. The time would come when not a dead letter, but a living letter would be given. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. That new letter is, of course, the gospel. The New Testament, the new covenant, the one beneath which we serve today, the one predicated on better promises, Hebrews 8, verse 6, the one that, as we noted earlier, is the perfect covenant. It is able to make you and I perfect. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. I use that perfect in the same way that the inspired writer does. In the sense that we can stand using Christ's blood to cover our sins, absolutely spotless before the God of heaven. That is a tremendous statement about what the New Testament offers. Tonight, thus, in concluding this lesson, I have chosen to list just a few of the high points that we have seen this evening. Namely, that that law of Moses was filled full. It was fulfilled. It was not destroyed. It was not set aside. It was not annulled. But when the Lord filled it full, 
as he died upon the cross and thus brought to fulfillment all of the things that had been prophesied within it, it was then that the Lord could in fact close the book upon that law and open another one. And the new one that still is open today is the New Testament, the gospel. It's the one that you and I must serve beneath and must serve if we're to please God, for there is no other. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Otherwise, we read this statement in Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And perhaps one final remark or note. We noticed also in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, that interesting and very memorable statement. Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Putting that thought together with the one we learned this morning, that righteousness is through the gospel, Ephesians 4 verse 5, we see that there is no other pathway to everlasting life. And so what is it, the case concerning you and me this evening? Not one jot or tittle passed from the law of Moses till it was fulfilled. Not the smallest mark from the New Testament will ever pass until it is completed as well. For it cannot be any, anything otherwise. Tonight, are you submissive to it? Are you living faithfully to its commandments and doctrines? They aren't grievous, 1 John 5, 3. They are, however, that beautiful thing that leads to everlasting life. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, notice that you, by that same gospel, need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His sweet name as the, Son, as the Savior, the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could help you with that, or to pray on your behalf for rededication to the faithfulness of God's cause, we'd be honored to do that as well. Either of those things we'd be overjoyed to assist you with if you'd let us know while together we stand and while we sing.